How's that? <laughs> Hello, God? <laughs> Helps when you turn your microphone on, right? Uh, just want to remind you that Mitch is recording all of the Deuteronomy sessions, but you cannot get to it from the new website. There's no button to click that leads you there. You have to actually type in the address to get it. And the reason is, is because we don't necessarily care to make it available to everybody, but we do want it to be there for the edification of the church and if people miss or something like that. So if you need that website address, uh, you can let, let Mitch know. Is it gbcportage.com slash D-E-U-T? Okay, not duet, okay? Don't, 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 it's not D-U-E-T, it's D-E-U-T, slash D-E-U-T. Um, Mitch, can you do me a favor up on the screen real quick since you have the internet up? We type in jodydillow.com, J-O-D-Y-D-I-L-L-O-W.com. If you want to write this down, if you're somebody who is all into theology, you like reading about theology, I want to share this with you. I got a chance to spend some time with Jody Dillow this past week at the conference. Uh, J-O-D-Y-D-I-L-L-O-W.com. I want to share this with you. He did this specifically for people. This book right here, Final Destiny, if you'd scroll up just a little bit, bring it up some, is incredible. This book normally costs about anywhere between $35 and $50 a piece. Uh, I explained to him that when I went to the New Tribes Institute over in Waukesha and talked with them that they didn't have this book. They were wanting to get a hold of it, but it's so expensive to get a hold of. And he said, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do is, is I will get on my website and I will drop the cost at what I have to pay for it so that you can send them some copies of it. And so he has dropped the cost of this book to $16. It is 1,200 pages long. And it's an incredible reference. Uh, if you're ever curious about uh, uh, anything about having to do with rewards, inheritance, those types of things, and we're going to see that a lot when we go through Deuteronomy, uh, he has written extensively. This book is probably 30 years worth of research put together. It's an incredible book. Uh, I know that Mary Cooper is reading through it right now. I mean, it's, it's a huge, massive deal. Uh, I know that Pastor Steve uh, has a copy, and he researches through it a, a lot. We've, we've had conversations about it. Uh, but anyway, if you are interested in anything, for $16, that book is a steal. In fact, if you wanted, you could probably buy it for $16 and turn around and sell it for $25 on eBay and make some money off of it, uh, which would be totally wrong for you to do. But if you are looking for a... If you are looking for a good theological read that will really blow away the way that you've normally looked at the Bible and really help you think outside of the box, it's an incredible book. It really is. And for him to do that just so that more people could have it in their possession, fantastic. So I wanted to make sure and share that with everybody. I should have shared it during church, but at least you guys know and you can pass it on too. So anyway, I just want to show you that real quick. So we're actually in the book of Deuteronomy now, and the reason why we took this detour over the past few weeks is because of the discrepancy between something that should have taken 11 days and ended up taking for 40 years. And, and, and it's the thing that I've preached since day one that I've been here. What costs them all of that time? One word, unbelief. Unbelief costs you before God. This is important to know. So we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we're going to work our way through. We've got this map that we're going to take a look at, plus the other map that we used earlier to kind of navigate through, because when we get in geography, and especially when we're studying the Bible for ourselves, we kind of look at the geography, and we're like, well, what in the world does it matter anyway, and kind of toss it to the side and say, whatever, okay? Uh, we don't have to do that if we'll just be willing to pull out our handy-dandy maps in the back. They're, they're not inspired of God, that's important to know, uh, but they are handy. 
And so what we have in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is the introduction. Now, does everybody remember when we talked about the suzerain-vassal treaty? Does everybody remember that? It was the idea of a greater king that was making an agreement with lesser kings, and if they would promise allegiance towards the greater king, the greater king would promise blessing and honor and provision to be put upon the lesser kings. Now, this was the way a lot of civilizations back then worked. In fact, it's believed that a lot of the civilizations that came under the headship of Pharaoh, Pharaoh was the greater king, he was the suzerain, that had that relationship with lesser kings. Uh, The idea here is that Yahweh is the suzerain, he is the great king, and the 12 tribes of Israel are the lesser kings of which he is in relationship through promise with them. Now, one more important thing to talk about before we move forward. The law was never about establishing relationship between Yahweh and Israel. That's important. The law is given in order to cultivate fellowship between Israel and Yahweh. Does that make sense? Do we know the difference between relationship and fellowship? Real quick, we're going to be talking about the next couple of Sundays, faith and justification uh, during our worship. Uh, When you believe in Jesus, you are justified and you come into relationship with Yahweh God through Jesus Christ. But it is by embracing the commands of Christ, us actually loving one another as Christ has loved us, that we find we begin to experience a fellowship with Yahweh. Does that make sense? Think of it when you got married. Dating was fun, wasn't it? That's how you got introduced into the relationship. When you got married, the relationship was there. But it wasn't until year two that you really realized what fellowship was, right? Because year one, everybody's holding on to everything, and then you just let it all go year two. We're in this, I'm grouchy, right, kind of thing. Of course, you were never like that. But still, (laughs) you begin to really start having this intimate closeness. You start to learn each other's idiosyncrasies. It's the same type here. God wants desperately, and we'll see that he goes to great lengths to have an intimate relationship with Israel. He really does. So chapter one, verse one, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, Mark Arabah, Mark Jordan. Those are the two places that we really know where they are. All the rest of these places are kind of circumspect. Nobody really knows the geography of it. But across the Jordan and Arabah, we know where those places are. Opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. Those are all vacation spots for next year, right? So notice right here, here's what we have. This right here is the Arabah. This is the Gulf of Aquabah. It's been very interesting how what we're studying on Sunday mornings, what we're studying in Sunday school, and what we're studying in James all just flows together. It's unbelievable how that is. And I say thank you, God, for that. Um, the Gulf of Aquabah is here. Of course, here's the Sinai Desert. Over there is Egypt. And from here up to the Dead Sea, or what we would understand is the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River flowing down the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea there, this middle rift right here is the Arabah, is what that is, okay? Now see the Negev up there? We didn't have that on the other map. We're going to look at that here in a minute. But see the Negev and how it's kind of a, a perforated structure there? It looks rocky or whatever. That's the idea down there. And we talk about the southern or the lower 
idea. And Kadesh Barnea actually ends up being one of the central hub places for whenever they don't go into the land. They come back and they wander in the wilderness. They constantly come back there. And the reason is, is because there's actually an oasis there. And also there's some pasture land for their cattle in order to keep them alive. And so they would frequent Kadesh Barnea whenever they were there. So when we talk about geography, those are the places we know. In the Arabah, across the Jordan, we get that. Verse 2, it is 11 days journey from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. Now, the 11 days journey, the time span that we're talking about between Horeb and where they needed to be is actually 140 miles long. What we find out is that you can cover 140 miles with over 2 million people walking in 11 days. Pretty interesting, huh? Been kept in the nose of the grindstone, maybe changing your Nikes after a while, but that's had to be some rough terrain. Anytime that you see the word Horeb here, H-O-R-E-B, as far as the mount where they were, it's the exact same thing as Sinai, okay? So just so you know, every time you see Horeb, you're dealing with Mount Sinai. That's where it is. And let me spell Sinai for you because you'll mess it up if you're not thinking because I definitely did and I've got some white out in my Bible. Uh, S-I-N-A-I, Mount Sinai, S-I-N-A-I is the idea. It also says here, Mount Seir, by the way of what? Oh, but um, exactly. Uh, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now, with Mount Seir, where is that on here? It's the idea of coming up around the Dead Sea. Everybody see Moab up there on the right of the Dead Sea? And then you've got Edom down here. We're kind of nestled into that area right in between. And of course, we know where Kadesh Barnea is to the left there. Now, an interesting thing, if you want to write this down, most conservative scholars believe that the year that this took place right here is 1406 B.C. That seems to be what lines out uh, with the history as you go through it. 1406 B.C. is the idea. Verse 3. In fact, some people believe that Mount Seir is actually the entire land of Edom because of the mountain range that it is. Uh, so that, that's, that's, that's a view of the geography at that time. Uh, verse 3, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month. Now for us, according to a Gregorian calendar that we operate by, this is saying pretty much somewhere at the end of January, beginning of February is how this runs for us. Okay, The 11th month, as far as Jewish understanding, is actually going to be the end of January, beginning of February uh, for us. On the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel, how? According to all that the Lord had commanded him to give to them. Remember, Moses is speaking as a prophet here. And so his words cannot be taken lightly. He either speaks in the line with what Yahweh has told him or revealed to him, or he is a liar and should be stoned. Very important. So we never take it lightly when it says that they spoke on behalf of the Lord. After he had defeated, verse 4, after he had defeated two big names we need to know, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, there's the other name, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, and Idre. Now, let me give you some, some stuff here about the Amorites. The Amorites are from the upper region of Mesopotamia and Syria. So, uh, Mitch, can we go to the next map? 
Well, this one right here, everybody see Mesopotamia up there? Assyria is going to be up and to the right some in that region. The problem was is that they migrated down to Palestine, and they did something that you never do when Yahweh gives land. They actually ended up running out uh, some of the uh, Canaanites and also displaced the Moabites that were located in the east of this region. Now, we're going to see in the next two and three chapter that we deal with here, Deuteronomy 2 and 3, that whenever God calls them to march through the land and come up ready to cross in, he will tell them, don't bother the Moabites. That's their land, which is interesting because they're there to conquer. They're there to come in and take possession of what Yahweh has promised them. But the problem is that particular land, that land off to the side there, that's the Moabites' land. Underneath, that's the Edomites' land. Don't bother them. Don't touch it. Now, when you have the Amorites, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, has come in, and he's coming from the north down, and he has displaced the people that God has allotted land to. Should he be there? No. He's acted in sin. God is very serious about real estate. I don't know if you've ever thought of him like that. But one of the things we're going to see in the law, don't move boundary markers. You ever mess with somebody in boundary markers, where your property is and where it's not? Sometimes you have to, and it's more headache than what it's worth. God took it very seriously anytime that you mess with somebody's boundary markers. Why? Because land demonstrates personal, private ownership. See, this is a, this is a concept that is way back then. That's why the socialism garbage doesn't work where we just need to allow everybody to do whatever. No, 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 no. The God of all creation does not advocate that. He advocates personal, private ownership of property. And he gives to you where you live and what you do. So he says here, uh, Sihon is the name you want to mark. Og is the name you want to mark. And the interesting thing about Og is Og belongs to a group of people known as the Rephaim. R-E-P-H-R-I-A-M. I think it is. The Rephaim is who they are. Or maybe it's A-I-M. R-E-P-H-R-I-A-M. A-I-M, A-I-M, I-A-M. I don't think the Lord's not going to like you if you spell it weird. It's okay. Does anybody know anything about the Rephaim? Does anybody know anything about them? Anybody know? Okay, the Rephaim are closely related to the same idea as the Nephilim. And the Nephilim are what? Giants. Almost genetic distortions. So Og was known as a giant at that time, uh, being part of the Rephaim. They're also known as Emim, E-M-I-M in, in uh, the Hebrew language. They're known as Emim. And anytime you see Nephilim, Anakim, Rephaim, Emim, they're all giants. They're all a subsect of giants that dealt at that time. And so notice, after he had defeated Sihon, he's overcome, is the idea that Moses came in and they slayed these people, okay? Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edri. Now, real quick, Ashtaroth is extremely interesting. And the reason is, is because it has two meanings. Remember this whenever you're studying the Bible. Context determines the meaning. Ashtaroth was a plot of land at that time 
that Og ruled over, but Ashtaroth is later mentioned in the Bible as these ornate poles that were made up where people would come and they would bow down and they would worship. And you especially see them to be a problem after the time of Solomon when the kingdom is divided into two, it's ripped into two, and the northern region is often worshiping either in high places at altars or at the Ashtaroth, which are these poles for pagan worship is the idea. The problem was they tried to use a pagan means to bring in in order to worship a holy God. No, 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 you don't do that. He's not to be mixed with anybody else. So that's an idea. Edri is the idea where it was located 20 miles east of the Sea of Galilee, and actually probably the region that it happened. Uh, can we go back to the other one, Mitch? It'd probably be easier with that one. Boom, there we are. Uh, was probably more in this idea of Moab and the side here, probably a little bit more east in the and the idea of Moab is where they were located at. Now, here's the reason why this is important for you to know. Everybody see verse 4. I know we're spending a lot of time on it. The people are the Amorites. The king is Sihon. The place is Heshbon. Does everybody see that? For the next one, the king is Og. Uh, the place is Bashan. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Ashtaroth and Edri uh, would also be places. Important thing to understand. Uh, Heshbon, Bashan. Ashtaroth and Edri, those four places, they were never, ever part of the initial promise that Yahweh made to Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17. They were not part of the original promise of inheritance. But because they had moved in and conquered this land that Yahweh did not give them, and they didn't belong there, the Lord, as Israel came through, called on them to be his execution tool in order to kill these people and remove them and purify the land once again and then gave it to them as part of their inheritance to come in. So here's why this is important. Before they ever cross over into the land that they're promised, they already have two major victories under their belt. This wasn't, this wasn't a, 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 a small matter by any means. And remember, these people are not soldiers at all. They're wanderers, they're brick makers, that's what they are. They know how to just do life very conservatively. These aren't people who crafted swords all of their life and are all these amazing warriors. The Lord is the one who fights their battles. And as they trust him, that's how they move forward. So it's important to know this was never promised as part of that. So verse 5, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, that's where they're at. That's the geographical location where they are. Moses undertook to expound this law saying, stop. There's the end of the historical prologue. Or I'm sorry, the end of the introduction. Now we're moving into what is known as the historical prologue. And here's what Moses is going to do. These people have got to get fired up in order to cross over and go into this land, okay? Can you imagine trying to devise a plan of action and you've either got people who could care less whether they're there or are scared to death? Anybody? Anybody? You ever had that on your hands? I'm just here to get a paycheck, whatever. That kind of attitude. Get this. I don't remember who the Dolphins were playing. They showed this on ESPN. Only some of you will get this. But they were running the Wildcat offense. Everybody know what the Wildcat is? How many guys know what the Wildcat offense is? Okay, it's where your quarterback stands off in a wide receiver position, and usually what happens is when they hike the ball, you throw it down to the quarterback who's in a very different place than where they should ever be in order to throw everybody that's on the defense off, and then from the side they can chuck it down, and everybody's so confused at what's going on, you get the ball, you run in for a touchdown. It's actually a really, really cool play. 
Anybody know who the quarterback for the Dolphins is? Jay Cutler. Right? Man, this guy, he is such a sour dude. And get this, from where we came from, he actually graduated from the high school that was one county over from where we were from. Yeah, in fact, I had some guys in my previous church who said they got to sack him in high school and it was the best feeling in the world. (laughs) Got to just lay him out, right? They loved it. So the Dolphins are getting ready to run this Wildcat offense. And the goal, the way that you run it effectively is your quarterback has to sell it as a wide receiver. So what happens? You get up to the line, right? You're ready to go. As soon as they hike it, I'm off. I'm going to run. You look down before they hike it. And here's Jay Cutler. Everybody else is down, ready to go. And he's doing this. Not caring about why he's there. Does that guy need to be on your team? No, bench that dude, right? You've got to get people fired up if you're going to execute something properly. You have to. And here's what Moses is going to do. Let me tell you about the history that you have from Egypt. And here's the reason why. Number one, you don't want to make past mistakes. When you reflect on your history, you recognize the mistakes that you've made and that you don't want to repeat them. Number two, you identify God's faithfulness. Why? Because the only way you move forward is by God. Whatever endeavor you have on your plate, whatever future date you have marked out, I guarantee you this, very, very, very adamantly I guarantee this, you will not successfully move forward if God is not moving you forward. It's impossible. I don't care if it's going to a kid's birthday party or it's something major like you're going to start your own business. It does not matter. It will not be successful if the Lord is not with you. It's not going to happen. And so we've got to recognize past failures, not to repeat them, who God is in the past and moving us forward. Now, here's the thing. Does everybody understand those two things for Israel actually go together? Why? Past failures were because of what? Anybody know? Unbelief. All of their past failures were due to unbelief. God is faithful. You can trust him. So that's the mentality for the next five chapters, four chapters that we're going to see moving forward. So look at verse 6. The Lord spoke to us at Horeb at Sinai saying, you stayed long enough at this mountain. And it's believed they were there for about a year or so that they stayed there at Sinai, okay? Which is interesting because they had the law, getting to know what God expected in this whole idea, receiving that information. Verse 7, turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah. Now, the hill country of the Amorites is probably what we're dealing with with the Negev. So on our big map that we're looking at here, that part down there at the bottom, everybody see the line that goes from Kadesh Barnea underneath the middle of the Negev, right above the wilderness of Zin and comes down around? You cross over in that direction? That's probably what we're dealing with there is exactly what he's describing about when the time came to get up and go. Now, now remember, if he's giving you a historical recap of what happened, He's he's currently in Deuteronomy speaking to second generation out of the Exodus. His recap starts with first generation out of the Exodus. And why is that? He wants to show their major failure that we just spent weeks looking at so that they do not repeat the same mistakes. So notice, he says here, uh, to your neighbors in the Arabah, remember that's the valley that comes down in between there, in the hill country of the lowlands and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the lands of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now pause for a second. 
Uh, Mitch, let's go to the other map. The promise of the land that God promised Abraham stretches from here to here. That's the land that was given to them. Now, forgive the funny little uh, note that I put in here, but right now, if you look, and it's funny because Jews are all about being kosher, all that Israel has right now is a little bacon strip of land along the Mediterranean right there, don't they? It just looks like a little, and that's it. And what do we have today going on? Palestinians, we need a state. We want more land. Uh, Everybody over in uh, Iran, we will not rest until Israel is completely destroyed. I mean, people are crazy. They hate the Jews. And what do they hate about them? It's not necessarily they hate how they worship. It's not that they hate their dietary customs. They hate them because of their real estate that they own. Who gave it to them? God did. And why is this a problem? We're going to look at this in a couple of weeks. It's a problem because Abraham decided that he would, well, let's help God out, and we're going to have a baby with this woman instead of my wife, whom God said that would be it. And so what do you have? Ishmael, Isaac, Palestinians, Israelis. Been a problem ever since. It's such a bad problem, you can't go through one night of CNN news without that coming up somewhere. The Middle East conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we see it all the time. And what did that come down? One choice of saying, you know what, I think I'll do that in order to help God out. Unbelief. Unbelief is the problem for why we have this today. It's very important to understand. But notice, they're to have all of that land. All of that land is their inheritance. Now, here's the interesting thing. We're talking about this in Genesis 1, right? Land, seed, blessing. Has Israel ever possessed all of that land? They never have. They never have. Do we know the blessing? Who's the blessing to all the world? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He died for everyone's sins. What's the other one? Offspring? Have we had that fulfilled? Do this. Uh, Let's see here. Look at verse uh, 8. Watch what he says here. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess it. Anytime you see that word possess in Deuteronomy, it's the word inherit. It means take hold of it. Be the heir to this land. Inherit this land God is giving to you. The land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. I spoke to you at that time saying, I'm not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has, here it is, multiplied you and behold, You are this day like the stars of heaven in number. There is the fulfillment of the offspring promise. Land promise, which we know this land, promised land. Blessing promise being the Messiah Jesus Christ. Offspring promise, the promise of the seed coming about. You'll have many descendants, as many as the sands of the shore and the stars of the sky. It has already been fulfilled at this time of the first generation. Does everybody see that? That's how quickly they expanded. Moses declares it right here. So here's the thing. If the seed promise has been fulfilled right here, and Moses tells us, and if the blessing promise has been fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ, what is the only promise of the Abrahamic covenant left to to fulfill? The land. They have to occupy the land. Absolutely. Without a doubt, Revelation tells us. I think they'll, I think, here's the thing. Great question. If you can imagine your geography current day and the little bacon strip of Israel's over here, right? Egypt's still Egypt. What do we have over here? You know? Iraq? 
Kuwait, going up slightly north, you have who? Iran. Moving over some, who do you got? Jordan. Jordan. Well, Syrians. Saudi Arabia. Libyans, right? Oil. Or not Libyans, uh, Lebanon. Oil. oil, you got oil stuff going on there. But here's the thing, have you noticed? The Jews are Jews. Muslims, 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 Muslims. Everybody notice that? And they fight amongst themselves. How come the Jews aren't dead if they're just this? God's hand of protection, absolutely. But don't you think that there's enough Jews that have enough concentrated hatred to go, hey guys, let's go kill these people. You see what I'm saying? It's, it, it is such an amazing testimony of God that his hand of protection is holding them in the land. And any attack that's gone on, especially the, uh, the attack of 1967, when they tried to get them on the Sabbath, was that the Six Days War, I think it was? It's incredible to read the history of that, how they were not able to take over the land. And actually, Israel walked away, the Jews walked away with the Temple Mount. Now here's the thing, they gave it back which was probably a movement of God because they weren't ready yet in order to, to move forward with that stuff. They ended up giving it back, and we could sit there and go, oh, dumb Jews, God's doing something, I promise you. But you would think at least that all of this hatred could be concentrated in the one direction it should be in to get it. So the question is, when will they occupy all this land? How are you going to get rid of all those Muslims? I mean, are they going to let their land go easily? They're going to put up a fight, aren't they? have to be wouldn't it what you need forgive this little phrase you need a weapon of mass destruction in order to kill everything that is in opposition so what do we do take your bible turn to revelation 19 i can't wait to go through the book of revelation with you guys it is some fun stuff and if you teach this chapter to millennials they freak out Revelation 19, they do. They don't like the fact that all this bloodshed and destruction is going on. I'm like, guys, don't you see that truth wins? God fulfills all of his promises perfectly. He's not slacking any of them. They're like, people died. What did they do? I'm like, they're sinners. They hate Israel. They hate God. They didn't believe. And if you see anything that's a reoccurring theme all throughout the tribulation, God is constantly trying to get people to believe. And they would not repent of their murders and their adulteries and their sorcery. It's crazy. Chapter 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. When Jesus Christ returns, he will judge and wage war. This isn't blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus in the middle of a pasture with a bunch of fluffy lambs hanging around him. It's not. We were eating breakfast yesterday at somebody, and there was a group of ladies over the table, and they go, well, we don't really know about that, but the pastor said he definitely knew that Jesus has blue eyes. <laughs> it took everything in me to not chuck syrup over and knock one of them in the head. I'm like, what are you talking about? Anybody met a Jew with blue eyes? Don't go to that church. Good grief. I mean, if that's what we're staking truth on, come on, man. But notice it says here, verse 12, and here this proves you wrong. His eyes were a flame of fire. That's what color his eyes are. His eyes are red as fire. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one 
knows except himself. I think that's a tattoo. Maybe not. Moving on. Verse 13. He is, he is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And real quick, compare verse 14 when you get an opportunity with verses 7 through 10 and see if you can determine who that is. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may, here it is, strike down the nations. It is important that we are very sober about what we see here. Notice he didn't pull out machine guns or machetes. That's nothing about it. Christ speaks, people die. His truth kills them. He kills them with truth. All of the opposition that have been so successful and so prosperous during this tribulation period, they are now laid waste. Why? Because the truth has come home. And so it says here, with the sharp sword of his mouth that he may strike down the nations, he will rule them with a rod of iron that's connected with Psalm 2, that he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. There's the tattoo, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, not on the sun, in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that, you, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. No discrimination for unbelief at that time. And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his armies. Now that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. When Jesus rips through the clouds and he returns, and as he speaks, people begin dying. I think the last thing I would want to do is if I'm in war at the battle of Megiddo at that time is turn my little shotgun over on Jesus coming through the clouds. It seems insane, doesn't it? But notice, that's how messed up they are. Now, we've only got four minutes left, so let me give you this little tidbit that will blow your mind. Are you ready? You ready? Here it is. Important. Does everybody remember when it says that heaven will roll, or the sky will roll up like a scroll, and then will be the return of the Son of Man? Do you guys realize that heaven is not necessarily straight up as much as it is another dimension? Think of that. That means on the other side of the sky, when you go outside and you look up at a clear sky and you think about how far it goes, on the other side of that dimension of the sky is where God's abode is in the throne room. Isn't that crazy? That's something else. And roll up like a scroll. I mean, we're talking, you know, I mean, imagine. It's like those blinds that we have sometimes, right? We're just going to roll up like that. Next thing you know, yeah, the top, here it comes. And here comes Jesus. And it says at that time, Men will cry out for rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face of the Lamb, to kill them. They think that death will get them away from God. Death is how you meet God. You see what's going on there? But they're so scared out of their minds. Why? Well, because on earth I didn't have to believe in the gospel and I could live any way I want to. I could treat people any way I want to. I could take whatever I wanted to. Sin was my answer to everything. Uh Uh-oh. Now i got to be accountable for it. And everything that comes out of his mouth is true. Interesting. How how is that land going to get cleared out? Jesus is going to speak. 
and it will clear the land for the people. Because after that, what does Jesus do when he returns? What's he do? He sets up what? His kingdom. And he will clear that land with his mouth and then set up his kingdom so that he can rule from the throne of David literally, physically, politically in Jerusalem. Clear it like he created it, exactly. Because he can do so. It will be extremely bloody. In fact, that, that, that uh, valley... I have, I have pictures of the valley, and I need to find where they are. Somebody was actually over there and took pictures of the valley of Megiddo. And it, and it talks about how it's going to be miles long and up to the horse's bridle, four to four and a half feet deep of blood that's going to go on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, so many people will die because of that. And here's the amazing thing about it. They had the opportunity to believe the gospel, but there will come a time when grace ends. I mean, right now, God is extremely long-suffering and patient with people, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Right now, he is holding off the second coming of Christ because he loves people. It's interesting. In fact, do you realize when you you pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, do you realize we're praying for the end of the world? Yeah, we're praying that Jesus would come back and set all things right. And what does that mean? It means that the people who did not respond in the dispensation allowed to them, they don't make it. See, this is why evangelism is so important. That's where God's heart is. That's why missions are so important. It's where God's heart is. So let's turn back to Deuteronomy real quick, and then we'll close. How do they clear out the land? They answered that question, and they leave. Good grief. Thank you. It's what we want to know. We got to go. Exactly. Let's see here. Verse 10, the Lord, your God has multiplied you and behold, you are this day like the stars of the heaven uh, in number. Verse 11, notice that, that Moses doesn't see this as a bad thing. Notice that he can't hear everybody's cases and judge them and, and, and work with everybody like that uh, just as one man. But notice that he doesn't see this as a bad thing. He sees their reproduction and their expansion as a blessing. He says, verse 11, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you, just as he has promised you. Israel is a blessing. I hope you guys grasp this. Israel is a blessing. We may have been painted a lot of really crazy things from the news or how we've grown up or whatever political party wants to tout this and that. I encourage you, take God's word for what it says and know the Jewish people from their history here and get to know. The reason is is because Israel is indispensable as far as prophecy is concerned. This, This promise of this land right here is everything, everything that the prophetic time clock hinges upon. It all is about land. It really is. And who will rule the earth? And the great king will make sure that his viceroys occupy this land in full. But notice he won't move forward in this agreement unless their devotion is to him. That's what's interesting. We have a massive revival that will take place in the tribulation. And part of that revival will be the remnant of Israel. There's always been a remnant, Jews for Jesus. This is why we need to be sound supporters of them. They're actually believing Jews. Everybody else does not recognize Jesus as their Messiah. I tried to witness to a girl that was one of those perfume sprayers at the mall in a kiosk one time because she was asking about some stuff that somebody marked on me one time. 
And so I was explaining to her about that Jesus is the promised Messiah and I actually got ran off by the person who ran the kiosk. But she was just, you could tell at the moment, she was just mind blown about the idea that I would have Hebrew and that I was promoting this idea that Yeshua is the Mashiach of Israel. It was very interesting. So this this stuff matters much deeper than what we understand. And we may say, you know what, that doesn't help me in my day-to-day to work. If God's promise to Israel is not faithful from beginning to end, then we can't trust anything that he says. So his proven track record is what should encourage our hearts greatly. Why can't they believe? Let's pray. Well, there's a reason why. Uh, if you will remind me next week, we will look at that, and I will answer that question. Why can't the Jews believe? We'll look at it next week. Remind me of it, though, okay? And then we'll get back into Deuteronomy. See, I told you, this class is not going to go by quick, but it's okay. We ain't got nothing else to do. Let's just learn about God. So, Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you, God, that you show your faithfulness, and you've set aside a people of which to demonstrate your loving kindness, your hesed, your loyal love to them. Father, let that encourage our hearts. We've been brought into such a special relationship with you through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His blood paves the way for our acceptance. So, Father, please... Uh, Make our hearts grateful and renew our minds and restore our confidence in the great God and Savior that we serve. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.